Welcome to Food Focus, a weekly companion to the Retail Focus podcast. Each show will discuss news, issues, and product releases in the restaurant, fast food, beverage, and grocery industries. Here are your hosts, Trent Kling and Leighton Kling. Welcome to this edition of the Food Focus podcast with Trent and Leighton Kling. Coming up on today's show, we'll talk about a couple of NBA tie-ins to the food industry. We'll also discuss a new natural color of chocolate for the first time in 80 years. But first, we'll talk about Dave and Buster's. Now this, you know about the perks that come with owning your own business. A lot of you out there franchisees. Perks like financial freedom, being your own boss, and having more control of your time. But you know, maybe you're just not sure where to start if you don't own a franchise out there. And, and Leighton, all of this can be yours when you open a UPS store franchise. The UPS store has over 35 years of franchising experience and was just ranked number four top franchise to own by Entrepreneur Magazine's 2017 Franchise 500 list. The UPS store offers stability, the support and reputation of world-renowned brand, and a proven business model with all of the training and marketing support you will ever need to make your entrepreneurial dream come true. Stores are available in large and small markets across the country, and their franchising experts will help you find a location that's just right for you. Plus, there's financing for those who qualify in special programs for military veterans. The time to promote yourself to business owner, if you haven't done so already, is now. Visit the UPS store franchising.com slash opportunities to get started today. That's the UPS store franchising.com slash opportunities. So on Tuesday, Dave & Buster's released second quarter earnings that showed record profit and revenue, but also indicated a slowing of growth. Total revenues increased 14.9% to $280.8 million from $244.3 million. That's quite a jump for this quarter. However, shares were off after the report by about 11.5%, and it's because of the pesky comparable restaurant sales. Leighton, this is an interesting business because not only do they have the food aspects, but they have the entertainment aspects, which lately have taken over kind of as the leading edge of this business. That's right. Dave & Buster's is really the tale of two companies. So it's sort of a two companies within a company, if you will, and we'll get into the, how they separate the revenue and how it really struck us by surprise how large the entertainment and gaming side of their business is. So far, you see comparable restaurant sales for the second quarter increase just 1.1%. You look back at previous guidance estimates from the company, this actually fails to meet those management expectations. And this is also on top of a positive 1% they recorded last year during the second quarter. So not amazingly strong comps to go up against as far as 2016 numbers are concerned. But you see comps covered just 76 of their 100 locations they have currently. And this is because of their overarching growth strategy. You see Dave & Buster's really has grown quite substantially in the last couple of years. And therefore, you can't do a comp basis on stores opened less than 52 weeks. Obviously, the newer stores did contribute, however, to the double-digit revenue gain that Trent pointed out at 14.9%. Part of that 1.1% comp included traffic increases of 0.9% and a slightly busier event business. You'll see in those larger Dave & Buster's locations, separate rooms where you can have birthday parties, anniversaries, a lot of happenings with a lot of people. That business was up 1.9%, so a stronger showing there. 
A lot of that has to do with the promotion of those types of businesses. And then those areas, that additional square footage being built into those newer locations. So those newer locations, that is going to contribute in the further quarters to those same store sales increases as it pertains to the event business. Net income of $30.4 million, Trent pointed out, was a record number for the franchise. Or if you look at it per diluted share, it was 71 cents versus the net income of 21.5 million or 50 cents per diluted share that came in last year. Net income rose 41% year over year. The company repurchased approximately 1 million shares uh, around $67.2 million is what it tallied up to during this latest quarter. This is around 2 million shares, a little over 2 million, I believe, for this current fiscal year, part of a repurchase plan for the company. Also, a recent debt restructuring has allowed them to increase the EBITDA margins and reinvest back into the business, as well as keep returning value in terms of those shareholder buybacks. This is an interesting concept, too, because the company has talked about reinvesting into the business, not only in those share buybacks, but also including more unit counts later on. So they're setting aside money for those capital expenditures, and you see they are very profitable. So they're using that money wisely, trying to diversify and hedge against risk in all facets of their business. And if you look into that business, that business dynamic there at Dave & Buster's, it's quite an interesting concept. Not a lot of other companies to compare them to, not only because of their entertainment business is a differentiator, but because it's actually a larger driver of revenue than both the food and the drink segment. And you see a large portion of their business now, as far as the square footage, is dedicated to the gaming sector of the business. And as we see in the second quarter trend, food and beverage revenue increased 10.2% to $118.7 million. And you could extrapolate that and say, whoa, double digit increases for food and beverage. That is extremely good. That's what you want to see in a company such as this one in the casual dining segment. Overall, though, amusement and other revenue increased almost twice as much, 18.6% this latest quarter to $162.1 million from $136.7 million last year. From this, we can see that the new games are driving the business growth that people have truly been investing in, investing their time in and using Dave & Buster's as a destination unless it's a place to grab evening cuisine and a beverage of their choice. Now roughly 42% of revenue is from food and beverage while the rest is made up of entertainment and the other growth aspects of the business. They talked about the summer games, Trent, and this is interesting because there's a lot of new promotion going on surrounding popular titles, things that you would see in pop culture that are very popular elsewhere aside from the food and beverage industries. A game involving the Rio Olympics, Sonic, of course, Mario and Mario-related games, Ghostbusters, nine total new games, but six of these with recognizable cultural impact. Now, despite all of this and despite entertainment being a higher margin segment of their business, it seems as though management does want to push people back towards the food segment trying to push the eat and play combo through more conventional advertising. Now, this is an older promotion. The eat and play combo has been around for a while, and it's popped in and out as Dave and Buster's needs to drive up food growth. But currently, they're hoping to attract newer eyeballs, not only through conventional advertising, but also through a significant amount of streaming advertising. Their newer menu items also released indicate that they're seeking increases in the food sector of their business. 
They include two shareable appetizers, three total surf and turf options, including bacon ramp shrimp with lobster sauce and fire grilled sirloin, as well as Angry Orchard hard cider barbecued half chicken. Like with games, they're also featuring new drink mixtures that take advantage of current pop culture phenomenons. They're also running, and I think this is interesting, an all-you-can-eat wings promotion for the first six Sunday, Monday, and Thursday games of the NFL season for $19.99. This seems to indicate a bigger push towards value opportunities, which will hurt margins long-term, but will also drive gaming traffic. And honestly, I'm a little bit concerned with these pushes towards these food products, particularly all-you-can-eat promotions, because I can tell you from past experience that people can put away a lot of wings, and we've talked about the increased price of chicken wings. So something like an all-you-can-eat wings promotion, while it might get people through the door and you hope playing games, in reality, those people are largely going to be watching the NFL games or consuming the NFL games on one of their many televisions and eating a product that might be one of the most expensive right now to source for many casual dining facilities. Leighton, I understood you took a recent trip to a Dave & Buster's in two separate markets. What were your takeaways from these forays into Dave & Buster's? There's actually none to Dave and Buster's where I live. So anytime I get an opportunity to go to a different market, a larger market, I end up going to not only different retail outlets for our other sister podcast, but obviously different food places as well. And Dave and Buster's was actually a place that I went to one area in the West Coast and one area in the Midwest. Dave and Buster's has many locations in these larger markets. This is really how their business runs. They talk about wanting to enter into smaller markets, but that's not typically what you see in a normal setting. But a couple of takeaways that I had were that the drink specials did appear solid, although I don't drink much, but they did appear to be promoted well a lot of signage, and the bar setup was very clear, very large, a lot of seating. So that was the first takeaway. And two, they are always heavily promoting new and upcoming games to entice people to revisit the locations. And I think that is what their business is predicated upon, is that repeat business. And I think one way to get those people coming in is for those titles, Trent, that you had talked about, those new popular titles. And it's interesting because I don't really play the games. Yes, I played two or three, but... This isn't something that if I did have in my particular market where I live now, I wouldn't be going every week or every other month even, to be honest with you, because the games, they're not something that appeal to me. But it is interesting to see how many adults were partaking in these games, particularly at the West Coast location. This was around the San Jose area, and you see a lot of people that were crowded around these games, playing with their friends, and spending a lot of money at these machines. So you get to understand the business more and more as you see the dynamic play out in real time. So these crowded areas, these somewhat disorderly gaming areas can be an asset for the company. And you see that really in the results here for the most recent quarter's revenue. Steve King, their CEO, said that they are implementing pay at the table and handheld ordering to improve their customer service aspect. This is in regards to their food and beverage division, but you see that speed and convenience are important here. And during those peak times that I was alluding to, these crowded times where there's just a ton of people everywhere, it's sort of what Panera CEO said about their business model a few years ago. It is kind of like a mosh pit, to be honest with you. And if you have people that get frustrated, that cannot be good for long-term business. You don't want to have to sit around an extra 10, 15 minutes to wait for your ticket. I think a lot of FSRs are trying to implement things like this so that people don't have to wait around and then get impatient. 
Three of their locations closed in and around the Houston area due to Hurricane Harvey here recently. And this was talked about several times during the earnings call. This is actually going to end up, as you can expect, affecting their future earnings and the full year earning potential for the company. All three actually ended up reopening last Friday. However, you see they are headquartered in Dallas, Texas, so they're in close proximity to the affected locations. And they said that they're going to be helping the employees affected by that crisis there. But the company is forecasting full year same store sales now still in the positive, even though they've had some sales woes, one to two percent. And they talk about some of those factors aside from Hurricane Harvey. They said the macro market in general for their kind of business is a little bit sluggish. They said it really has taken on momentum from the first quarter and they're saying a little bit less traffic, even though they said they saw traffic increases for this latest quarter. They don't expect a lot of strong momentum in the third and fourth quarter and their shares really trend, as you had said, down double digits ended up being down, but not to the lowest point during the 52 week period. They're back around $51 a share this time last year, $44 a share. But they recently hit an all-time high of $73 a share in June of this year. We move into the confectionery industry as a Swiss chocolatier has developed a new natural chocolate color that they hope will help boost chocolate sales domestically and overseas. By domestically, of course, we mean in the U.S., even though they, of course, are a Swiss chocolatier. The development comes after significant softness in chocolate, which we'll talk about in a second, caused partially by rising prices and partially by consumer sentiment. Let's give you a little bit of a background regarding the color of chocolate. You know, we think of chocolate traditionally as that dark brown. You have white chocolate as well, but chocolatiers, other than those two, have pretty much been without a new natural color for chocolate in 80 years. White chocolate was developed by Nestle after they were able to isolate cocoa butter from cocoa solids in the 1930s. In the U.S., white chocolate, by definition, must be at least 20% cocoa butter by weight, which is astonishing considering that that's how you make white chocolate is with cocoa butter. But some of the white candy coatings that you see sometimes referred to as white chocolate are basically made with sugar and hydrogenated oils. Now, the developing chocolatier here with this ruby chocolate color is Barry Calibo AG is also the world's largest cocoa processor. They actually process chocolate for many of the giants like Hershey's and Cadbury. They're not really a publicly facing company to the extent that Hershey, Cadbury, and Mondelez International, the likes of those are. This is a development 13 years in the making as part of a partnership with Barry Calibo and Jacobs University or Jakobs University as it's called in Germany. What they've done is isolate a certain powder within a type of chocolate bean or a cocoa bean native to Ivory Coast, Ecuador and Brazil. So a couple of different continents there. The powder that they isolate has a reddish color and when processed into chocolate really turns kind of a pink or light magenta color. They call it ruby, not necessarily pink and not necessarily millennial pink. It's said to have a little bit of a berry flavor. Of course, we eat with our eyes a lot, so that probably has something to do with it, with sour and sweet components. Interesting that it's not bitter and sweet, but rather sour and sweet components there. Now, I want to take a look at some of the macro impacts and just the color alone. You might turn your attention to this form of chocolate and see how much it would affect the chocolate industry potentially. 
Rosé being so popular in the wine industry. Rose gold, the mo- one of the most popular iPhone colors. People are talking everywhere about millennial pink. And even though they don't want to market this chocolate as such, still, this is a hot commodity in terms of a color for a chocolate industry that struggled mightily in the last two years. Leighton, what are some factors that have resulted in this backup in terms of the chocolate industry as we see demand fall considerably since the early portion of this decade? Yeah, we've covered the waning demand, which we believe to be caused by constantly increased prices and a general awareness of how sweets impact health. In particular, sugar. Obviously, there have been sugar substitutes brought forth by different campaigns and different companies, but chocolate prices spiked in 2014 as news outlets warned of skyrocketing prices as a result of reduced supply. So there you have a simple economics equation, supply and demand, and you see that prices rose 18% from 2013 to 2014 on the commodity level. This was blamed on a lack of supply and a desire for a higher percentage of chocolate versus other ingredients in confections. Fast forward to this year when cocoa futures hit a four-year low in February and the cocoa surplus hit a six-year high. Beginning in 2013, customers began to reach for substitute goods that I alluded to just now. And at the same time, demand for sweet snacks has been flat. Barry Calabo themselves reported overall flat chocolate sales in their first quarter of this year. However, they saw an increase in gourmet and high percentage cocoa products and a decline elsewhere. This development could certainly boost U.S. volumes if successful, but Barry Calabo seems more preoccupied with China here because of the success they're seeing. The chocolate was fully unveiled there in Shanghai, and you see Chinese chocolate volumes have been tepid in the past at best, falling an estimated 4% in 2016 versus 2015. However, the new ruby chocolate, as they call it, had very good response in China, which for chocolate is quite unusual. And this is a statement according to Barry Calabo, a rep there in the company. They look at the Chinese market as basically an untapped resource for chocolate as a whole. In the United States, this could potentially positively impact sales and sales volumes for chocolate giants. Hershey, as you mentioned, Trent, for example, mentioned chocolate just once in their latest earnings call, attempting to obscure softness in that demand there. Other than Kit Kat and Reese's, both with mid-single-digit increases in volume, there seemed to be a lot of dancing around the core chocolate brands in their annual presentation this year. Nestle saw worldwide contraction of confectionery sales negative 1.6% in their latest quarter. And Mondelez International is actually the owner of Cadbury. Their organic net revenues for confections declined 2.7% in the latest quarter. One thing I would like to mention, in in more of a down-to-earth fashion, if you look at this chocolate, this ruby red chocolate, you're seeing a chocolate that really isn't a dark color. It's, It's more of a light pink. And they are trying to kind of shy away from that fact but it actually looks the tone at least the color looks to me like the 2012 pink slime that was found being used by mcdonald's in a number of ways in their beef products that was ammonium hydroxide and if you compare the two i was actually looking at the pictures before recording this podcast and they're actually fairly similar so you can see why the company is wanting to have the more positive connotation of saying that this is a ruby chocolate instead of anything like a pink chocolate or anything like that. You can certainly see some marketing aspects come into play surrounding Valentine's Day, a holiday for which there's usually a lot of pink and red. But 
Outside of that, I, I think these companies, once people try it once, because it is a new product, these companies will have their marketing hands full, potentially, outside of that Valentine's Day holiday. Well, we talked about it at the top of the show, but the perks that come with owning your own business really are second to none. Leighton, you and I are both actually multiple business owners, and we benefit from things like financial freedom. We get to be our own boss. We have control of our time. In fact, we get to make time for this podcast. But for those out there that maybe aren't business owners just yet, maybe you're wondering where to start. And, you know, a great place to start would be through the UPS store as a matter of fact. Yeah, there's a lot of companies out there trying to have the franchising model, but UPS has proven it through many years of existence. Over 35 years of franchising experience is brought forth, and they were just ranked the number four top franchise to own by Entrepreneur Magazine's 2017 Franchise 500 list. The UPS store offers stability, the support and reputation of a world-renowned brand, and a proven business model with all the training and marketing support you will ever need to make your entrepreneurial dreams come true. Stores are available in large and small markets across the country, and their franchising experts will help you find a location that's just right. You know, the other thing with the UPS store, if you're worried about how you're going to afford it, there's financing for those who've qualified. There's also special programs for military veterans in the U.S. The time to promote yourself to business owner, if you haven't done so already, is now. Visit the UPS store franchising.com slash opportunities to get started today. That's the UPS store franchising.com slash opportunity. We start the second half of the food focus with a semi-food related story and it's because it involves someone who's been in food news a lot over the last couple of months. We found out this week that Ignite Restaurant Group isn't the only thing that Tillman Fertitta is buying. The Landry's overseer also bought the Houston Rockets of the NBA as agreed upon Monday and announced Tuesday. Purchase price said to be a whopping $2.2 billion, more than even Steve Ballmer bought the Clippers for earlier this decade. Now, Fertitta, in case you're wondering, has a reported net worth of $3.1 billion, much of that coming from the Landry's seafood chain. Also, he owns Golden Nugget Casinos and Hotels. Now, Fertitta's net worth was $2.4 billion in 2013. That tells you how much growth there's been both for Landry's and Golden Nugget in that time. You know, looking back at Fertitta's history, his restaurant career began as a partner in the first Landry's Seafood in 1980 in Katy, Texas. And nothing really happened on this front for about six years until he gained a controlling interest in the restaurant in 86. In 1988, he became the sole owner and then in 1993, Landry's, as they were seeking some capital to expand and grow their store footprint, they released an IPO. Just 17 years later, Fertitta purchased all remaining outstanding shares to resume full ownership. And then just this year, just this summer, in fact, Landry's was announced as a bidder for Ignite Restaurant Group at their bankruptcy auction in June. They were announced as the winner for this in August. Now, this was significantly cheaper than the deal he just brokered for the Houston Rockets. The winning bid came in at $55 million for Ignite Restaurant Group. That included both Joe's Crab Shack and Brickhouse Tavern and Tap. An interesting thing coming from this bankruptcy auction is that Fertitta said that their bid didn't include 
Brickhouse. But as it turned out, the $55 million they bid for Joe's Crab Shack was actually the largest combined bid by far. So they ended up with Brickhouse as a bonus, and they're currently looking to sell that as we speak. Overall, Fertitta, between the casinos, some hotels, and the restaurants, owns over 500 establishments, all under the Landry's Incorporated banner. Fertitta actually has no relation to Frank and Lorenzo Fertitta, who had sold the UFC earlier in 2015 for over $4 billion. That was a majority stake there. But Fertitta is apparently a name that comes with a lot of cash. Fertitta is a longtime fan of the Rockets. He was once a director for them and sits regularly courtside at Rockets games. Forbes valued the Rockets at $1.65 billion this year, but they apparently received multiple bids over $2 billion due likely to the fact that the NBA has done quite well over the past few years with big franchises, the Cleveland Cavaliers and the Golden State Warriors. Granted, this deal includes operation of the Toyota Center also. In a rare instance, Fertitta is the sole recipient of the Rockets. Usually there's some sort of partnership and ownership of sports teams. You saw most recently with the Golden State Warriors, it's actually several people who own that franchise there may be some possible tie-ins, but likely not. Expect some sponsorships, though, coming, but they are limited with restaurant and venue options as well. We'll stay in the NBA, keeping with basketball. This seems odd for a food podcast to be talking so much about the NBA, but former NBA player Ray Allen and his wife have expanded their all-organic, fast-casual concept, this time partnering with Walmart. Now, we should preface this by saying that there was uh, quite a bit of misreporting and misleading headlines about the topic, so we look to clear some things up with this story. Their chain, the Allen's chain, is called Grown, and they have a menu that's packed with only USDA-certified organic offerings. It's Ray Allen and his wife, Shannon, the founders, their first restaurant was open in South Miami, Florida, which makes sense. Miami, the former home of Ray Allen while he was playing for the Miami Heat, won a championship there. And according to some research on the subject, is said to be the only certified organic restaurant on the East Coast with a drive through If that's true, that certainly is amazing. Now, that was two years ago. Since that time, they've expanded to the Hard Rock Stadium, which is the football stadium there in Miami. One's called Pro Player Stadium or Joe Robbie Stadium. The Watts Coast Center and also Wesleyan University in Connecticut, which is Shannon's home state, of course. Ray Allen went to the University of Connecticut. So all of that makes sense. They're expanding to areas they're familiar with. Now, fast forward to now, they've inked a deal to operate in, of all places, a Walmart supercenter. Walmart obviously is known to have successful partnerships with more prevalent QSRs, one being Subway, another Burger King, and then, of course, McDonald's, which you'll see throughout the country. But this will be the first QSR with small roots and an all-organic menu to be inside a Walmart Supercenter. The Walmart's located in Orlando's Lake Nona community. And if you see a statement by Shannon Allen, she says the opportunity to partner with Walmart is so inspiring, and they're still a small family business. They said in less than two years, we're sitting inside one of the biggest companies in the world. It speaks to the power of one mission. This is probably how a lot of the stories ended up getting mixed. A lot of the headlines and a lot of blogs were reporting that Walmart is actually part owner in this, but it's actually a founding from, as Trent, you said, Ray Allen and Shannon Allen. Walmart actually has no ownership stake in this restaurant franchise, but they are helping out by having this partnership. Obviously, Walmart carries an abundance of customers coming in and out, 
day in and day out, week in and week out. And this is going to be interesting to see if they're able to really take off with this sort of concept. Speaking of the concept, the menu is similar to what you would see at a Panera. However, it's a bit more condensed. And again, it's more tailored towards those interested in those organic offerings. They have fruit smoothies as well. They actually have six different varieties of smoothies as well as six cold pressed juice drinks. They offer breakfast and all day segments on the menu. An example of a breakfast item would be their gluten-free pancakes on their website. Those come in at a $7 price point, but they have a lot of optionality as it pertains to their menu. And you see their all-day items have full meal optionality where a guest can pick a protein, grain, vegetable, and an adjacent sauce. And you see this also applies to wraps, soups, and sandwiches that you would really liken to a Panera location. These can be mixed and matched, and you can also buy many of the items separately as you could at a normal restaurant. But what's interesting here is for their full meals, they do offer family portions, something you don't often see. And these can be as much as $54 if you want a full family portion. This is going to be quite a bit of food. It can feed up to a family of five. And for personal portions, the price usually falls between $7 and $18 which if you look at the higher end is a bit pricey if you compare it to those McDonald's and Subways and Burger Kings that pride themselves on the value offerings inside those Walmart Supercenters. The Allen said they wanted a concept to appeal to those customers that are interested in nutritious food, but also needing it fast and on the go. So perhaps the customers are going to be favoring the fact that they can get it within four minutes or less and get that nutritious food, whereas a McDonald's, maybe not so much. The desire to have clean food and clean fast food came from certain struggles at home, where Shannon Allen has described the difficulty of feeding five children in a quick manner. And then she realized, after trying to go to some QSRs, that there really wasn't a concept out there to fit her specific needs. She actually ended up talking about one of her children having type 1 diabetes and how it's been hard to service the diet needs there. And she described the idea of this market opportunity as an aha moment. She said when they first opened, they didn't really expect anyone to show up, but the concept was so well received that they're in a constant evolution now to try to find new ways to serve their customers. And as for the Walmart partnership, Trent, you can see that this is sort of a one-off deal. You don't see this type of thing very often. We are curious to see if it's going to be a big hit with their core customer base. It is certainly different from those typical QSRs you mentioned, but in terms of price point, if you can do so on a value, really the 7 to $10 range isn't altogether too much more than what you'd be paying at a Subway for maybe a foot long chips and a drink. So I think that might be the next step for them. Were they to expand to other partnerships like this, trying to keep that price point down overall and pinpoint markets where this might work. Obviously, they feel like the Orlando market, this venture could work, but this is a business that I, I think Leighton, you and I are going to keep our eye on because they come from a unique circumstance. Ray Allen has always been very crafty in terms of how he handles his money, so we know they've got capital to grow the concept if they'd like, and it wouldn't be a surprise at all to see this concept go beyond the East Coast maybe hop coast to coast over to the West Coast. Well, we reached the final segment of the Food Focus podcast, a segment we like to call What We Ate, where each Leighton and I tell you about a product that we tried that's either new to the world of food or new to us, and we begin with Leighton. Well, on a previous edition of the podcast, I talked about eating veggie straws. 
A lot of people know veggie straws now because they're actually bought in bulk by both Costco and Sam's Club. So they're quite prevalent in the grocery space. But garden veggie straws are very popular. They use sea salt and all natural products within the ingredient label. And you see that they actually came out with a new sweet potato blend that only has the straws as the sweet potato. Typically, they're either the apple straws, the cinnamon apple straws, or the veggie straws with three to four different varieties of vegetables. But this actually struck my eye because this was obviously a new offering, but also the promotional price that I got it for. A typical bag, if you go to your local Costco or Sam's Club, is around $5.98. This one actually was around $4.50 for a fairly large bag. The ingredients, again, all, all natural with this particular offering. And this was something that, to me, didn't really resemble the previous veggie straws. If our listeners are familiar, they can actually be quite salty. That's where a lot of the flavor gets brought in. These sweet potato straws didn't seem to have a lot of salt, which I think is good if you're concerned about that particular nutrition fact. But the Sensible Portions company really does pride themselves on transparency with their products. And you can see that the apple straws actually have a gluten-free version now. So I do highly recommend you try this. It's interesting because looking on their website, it's tough to tell whether or not this is going to be a limited time offering for sensible portions. But at my local grocery store, I'm going to be sure and buy the rest of them because they were as good, if not better, than the apple straws, those cinnamon apple straws that I already mentioned. A very interesting brand extension for them. Obviously, sweet potatoes, high in potassium, high in a lot of other nutritional categories. But as a snack, this is very innovative for sensible portions. You know, now that we're into September, it's that time of year where you start to see more of the fall seasonal beers. And perhaps the premier fall seasonal beer, at least in the U.S., is the Marzen style or the Oktoberfest style. Now, typically I go for a Bob's 47. It's brewed by Boulevard. That's kind of my go-to in terms of the Marzen style. I have beers that I like a little bit more than that, sure, but this week I branched out a little bit from that with two other Oktoberfest beers. One I was handed, and this would be the Shiner Oktoberfest. Shout out to Kip, who handed me one of these at a recent gathering. Now, I don't typically drink a lot of Shiner beers. They're okay if you're stuck in Texas and you have no other microbrews to search for. Not that Shiner is a microbrew, but it is not exactly one of my favorite breweries. This Oktoberfest, I was shocked to find out that it's actually brewed with ale yeast rather than lager yeast, which is somewhat unique. This particular beer I found to be slightly overcarbonated and hoppier than I would find most Oktoberfest. It was an okay beer, but I still wouldn't prefer it, I don't even think, over the regular Shiner Bach that is distributed fairly widely. Now, the one I would recommend over that, if you can get it, is brewed by Mother's Brewing Company. Mother's is out of Missouri, and they brew a simple Oktoberfest beer. I had this on tap, and it was excellent. Incredibly smooth, very rich, of course, malt forward as well. But I didn't find that anything was overwhelmed by the carbonation in the beer, and I felt like the hoppiness was just about where you want it for a Marzen-style beer. Where I live, it's been cooler over the last few days, so I've been drinking a few more Oktoberfest, and I'm sure I'll dip into that Bob's 47 later on, but for me, the Oktoberfest by Mother's Brewing Company is certainly one that I'll explore again in the future. 
That'll do it for us here on the Food Focus Podcast. A big thanks to the UPS store, franchising.com slash opportunities for being this episode's sponsor. We'll be working with them throughout the next couple of months. And a big thanks to Layton as well. For him, I'm Trent saying so long until Retail Focus on Friday, a full show including an interview about sorority and fraternity buying habits on college campuses. We'll also discuss Duluth's earnings beat that took place earlier this week and news of a potential bankruptcy restructuring at Toys R Us. This has been the Food Focus Podcast. As always, we may have a position in or against companies we discuss on the podcast. Do not invest in stocks solely on the input of the podcast hosts. For more information or for past podcast episodes, visit us online at retailfocuspodcast.com. Also, follow us on Twitter at The Food Focus for news in the restaurant, fast food, beverage, and grocery industries. Thank you.